Welcome to this uh, final afternoon seminar for this term. Uh, and I'm delighted today that we're joined by Nazanin Mashiri, who is a roving correspondent for Al Jazeera English, based in Tunis, normally. Um, she's worked for Al Jazeera for, I think, about eight years. Before that was with ITV News here in the UK. Uh, but Nazanin has got a deep experience of reporting to our war zones, conflict zones, to difficult societies across the Middle East, Africa... Uh, Ukraine, to mention just a few. Uh, I should say she's here in a personal capacity. She's not a formal representative of Al Jazeera, though I'm sure she'd be happy to answer any questions, broader questions you may have. But I mean, great to have you here, so uh, you're very welcome. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank the Reuters Institute for the study of journalism for inviting me uh, to speak here. I have to say this is one of the first times I've spoken to uh, peers, colleagues uh, who are very experienced journalists and, of course, other people as well, members of the public. Thank you very much for joining us here. Um, as a correspondent for Al Jazeera English, I've, I have travelled to many troubled parts of the world, but I wouldn't call myself a war correspondent. Um, but I have covered wars. I think there is a difference. The difference is that war correspondents stay when people my, like myself leave. Uh, they take greater risks. Something my network, for example, wouldn't allow uh, some of our teams to do. And war correspondents actively search for the front line, whereas correspondents like myself or my colleagues, we will stand a safe difference, dis distance from the front line to try to cover what we're seeing safely. I believe that war reporting hasn't changed that much, really. But, uh, for now, what we're seeing at the moment in the industry uh, is that there are very few, let's just say, true international war correspondents out there at the moment, and I'll explain why that is uh, in this talk. I think one of the reasons is that uh, journalists are more of a target than ever before. Um, part of it is to do with money, cost-cutting of bureaus. And another important factor is social media, uh, which has seen the rise of a new type of what I call sofa war correspondent. <laughs> um, for example, I'm sure many of you know uh, Moses Brown, uh, sorry, Brown Moses. Brown. Yeah, Brown Moses, the uh, blogger who uh, has become famous with his investigations into weapons and armaments uh, in Syria. Now, as I was doing my research, I came across this image of one of the most famous Second World War correspondents, Ernie Pyle, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. Now, this photo surfaced more than 60 years after it was taken. Now, you can see the figure in the photograph there uh, is clad in army fatigues. Uh, he's clutching a military cap there. Um, and just looking at this photograph, it <coughs> struck me that you know, he could be asleep, except for, if you notice, there's, there's blood dripping from his mouth on the side there. Um, and obviously he's not asleep, he's dead. And he was killed while reporting in Japan in April 1945. Now, Ernie paid the ultimate price for trying to report the story. As I mentioned, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, journalist from the Second World War. But he wasn't a directly a target, as far as I know. Uh, he was just caught up in the battle. 
But nowadays there are journalists who have paid the ultimate price and they have been targeted for being journalists. Now, I don't have any personal experience of reporting in Syria. Al Jazeera English hasn't sent uh, people in to the country for a while now because it's so dangerous. But Anthony Lloyd, who is a Times foreign correspondent and author, is probably one of the most prominent international journalists to go into Syria uh, recently. Now, Anthony and his photographer, Jack Hill, had a lucky escape. They were bound, beaten and shot in Syria after being kidnapped in March last year. Now, Islamic Front found out about his kidnapping and helped secure their release. Now, his kidnappers clearly had dollar signs in their eyes when they realised that they'd got hold of Western journalists. But dollars may not have been enough if they'd been handed over to ISIL, as, as we know from so many journalists who never made it out of Syria. Now, I just want to read you... Um, an extract from his harrowing dispatch. And this, for me, is war reporting at its best. As we lay crunched in our bundle, the vehicle speeding onward, two of the gang leaned over the back seat, lifted the blankets from our heads and removed every item from our pockets, including my tracking device and my inhaler. I seldom suffer from asthma, but I always keep an inhaler with me on assignment. War is bad enough, even when you can't breathe. I sat up and asked a young, bearded fighter to give back the inhaler. He struck me, more out of instinct than malice. I asked again, and again he hit me. Then, apparently puzzled at my insistence, he looked at the inhaler and shrugged a question. I pointed at it, then at my chest and gasped. He understood the gist and returned it. That moment was an epiphany. We were hostages whose lives had value. They were not going to kill us. Instead, they likely were planning to sell us to a jihadi group, an increasingly common practice among rebel groups in Syria. Now, I spoke to Anthony before I um, came here to Oxford and asked him, for him, what was the biggest change that he'd seen in the nature of war reporting? He told me that reporters who were once regarded by warring sides as relatively neutral or, at worst, nuisance figures are now actively targeted, hunted, and either abducted for profit or killed as a propaganda message. Now, today reporters are not only regarded as a legitimate target, but a desirable target, he told me. And for him, this change, more than changes in technology or anything else, has altered the way we work in conflict. Now, I've spoken to many other foreign correspondents in preparing um, this talk, and many of them agree with Antony's grim outlook. Now, one described the deaths that we've seen in Syria as a last nail in the coffin for war reporting. News International, which I'm sure many of you know, uh, is one of the most important news organisations here in the UK, the owners of the Sunday Times, the Times, the Sun, for example. Now, from sources within News International, uh, they say that it's so overrun with lawyers, security experts and basically the apparatus of compliance, that the journalists there who used to do a lot of war reporting say that they're doing very little war reporting of note. The people who are doing the war reporting are the freelancers. The Times, along with many other major <coughs> newspapers and news agencies, no longer accept work from freelancers in rebel-held areas of Syria, um, even after they've managed to get out safely. Agence France Press, which I think you all know, 
has never really shied away from dangerous areas in the past, no longer accepts work from freelancers in rebel-held areas of Syria. Um, Michelle Leridan is the global director of news there, and she says that the reasoning for them is that in a war zone, and this is my experience, um, there are always pockets of relative safety where a journalist can work at least, lay his head down or her head down, sleep for a little bit, file a story. But in Syria, the lack of such a safe haven uh, in the rebel-held areas makes the country dangerous from one end to another. Now, Al Jazeera English, our policy uh, is that we don't send uh, staff or freelancers into Syria, but we don't have a policy against using freelancers who've made it out. Um, But we do tend to use uh, footage from social media activists uh, in rebel-held areas, all through fixers, for example. But we we make sure that the footage is verified, and we usually use uh, sources which have been tried and tested by Al Jazeera Arabic. Um, And we don't use footage from any random sources. So we do try to uh, make sure that what we show... Uh, on our screens, on our online platforms, has been verified. So it's very interesting to see that the policy of networks like Al Jazeera, like Agence France Presse, like News International, has led to the decline of deaths of journalists in Syria. If we take a look at this graph, (coughs) this is a graph from a recent report uh, by the International (coughs) News Safety Institute, And you can see that Syria is not even in the top 11 um, anymore of deaths of journalists. Um, I think the exact figure is last year it was 11 deaths, and I think this year so far, um, well, first six months of the year, it was two deaths, from what I understand. Um, Just on a side note, it isn't really war reporters who are the most under threat. It's local journalists investigating crime and corruption who account for more than 90% of those killed. The report highlights the fact that because of all these journalist deaths, it impacts on what we know or what we, um, you know, the general public or people know about what is going on uh, in areas of the world. And basically this is, by targeting journalists, it's a means of censoring the message that's coming out of these countries. Now, I suppose because of the dangers of Syria and Libya, in my experience and what I've seen from a lot of colleagues who are people who cover wars and conflicts, they focus their attention on more accessible conflicts like the Ukraine, which is probably one of the most accessible conflicts right now. Um, Now, compared to the conflict I covered in uh, Russia and Georgia, Uh, which was in 2007. For me, this was a very 21st century conflict, very different to anything I'd covered before. It's all about accreditations, uh, social media, ratings, you know, what network you work for. And to be able to work in Ukraine, you have to get accreditation from both sides. So APO, that's in Kiev, um, and the Donetsk People Republic, which is in the east. Now, the media people for both of these sides realise the importance of uh, journalists covering this conflict. So, 
by giving out accreditation, they're controlling the message. Because without accreditation, you can't get past checkpoints. Um, with it, they know who you are, who you're working for, what your Twitter handle is. You know, they can monitor you. And, of course, if they want to, they can take away your accreditation if, they, if you report something they don't like. Um, another difference which I found extraordinary uh, covering the war in Ukraine, I don't know if anyone else has experienced this I'm in covering a conflict, is that I was able, and other journalists were able, to cross opposing front lines on the same day. So our team was able to travel <coughs> across basically no man's land, uh, into Ukrainian army-controlled territory, then back into uh, separatist-held territory. This was impossible at night because of the shelling, um, but we managed to do it during the day. Now, if you're crossing lines that you, and you've seen defensive positions and you have access to information that can get people killed, you, know, you have soldiers at checkpoints who are under extreme uh, pressure and stress and on the edge, uh, so it is extremely problematic because you could give information that could basically get someone killed. Um, in the end, our driver, who was a local driver, came under suspicion for passing such information. We were able to get him out of a sticky situation and Al Jazeera policy after our team's experience was that we were to stick to one side of the front line. So if we were going to report, we would have a one team on one side and one team on the other. We wouldn't be crossing front lines on the same day, which uh, was extremely dangerous. Um, one thing that I saw in Ukraine, and one thing that experienced journalists talk about, uh, is the new phenomenon that we've seen since the Arab Spring. The rise of what we call um, the novice reporter, who has little or no journalistic experience or safety training, trying to make a name for himself or herself. Um, I met one such person in Ukraine called Christopher Allen, who's an American MA student. I actually met him at the scene here, which is my photograph, uh, which is just outside Donetsk. Um, I met him you know, close to this blown-out tank, and those are actually Ukrainian soldiers who'd been killed. Um, he was travelling with other freelancers in a cramped car. Now, he, he had no experience at all in journalism, never written for any publication, and he decided to head out to Ukraine because he'd been advised by one of his teachers, apparently, go somewhere and wait for something bad to happen. So he decided to go to eastern Ukraine. Um, being there was no guarantee for him that he would have his work published, it worked for him because of his sheer persistence and also because he became quite prominent on social media. Now, what I'm trying to explain uh, is that, in a way, we, we tell uh, young wannabe reporters or journalists that it's far too dangerous for you to go to uh, places like uh, eastern Ukraine. You know, you're not experienced enough, you don't have the safety equipment. But at the same time, we reward people who do uh, end up getting that bang-bang footage or <coughs> ending up on the front line or um, reporting in some sticky situations. For example, the recent winners of this year's Bayo Prize, which is a very, very famous French prize for television news and for war reporting, both of them, young uh, video journalists, 
very inexperienced. One of them filmed the aftermath of bombing in eastern Ukraine, and the other one, just got a photo from his report, Xavier <coughs> uh, Munz, uh, he did an incredible film. Try and watch it if you can. It's called Surrounded by the Islamic State for Art TV. And he basically was in the Sinjar Mountains uh, with the Kurds as uh, they came under attack. And he stayed there for three weeks. His fixer, his translator, left him. And he basically stayed there and got an incredible footage and <coughs> put himself at risk, but he was rewarded for it because he won one of the most prestigious prizes in international news reporting. In many ways, the Arab Spring and the Libyan War saw the beginning of what we call the Stringers' War. They were basically accessible to people like Christopher, to Xavier, accessible because they could just go there on a shoestring budget. The difference between wars that we're seeing now and the past was that in Iraq uh, in 2003 and Afghanistan, most reporters got access to the front line or access to interesting situations because they were embedded with the military, or sometimes unbedded, but they required an assignment from a network or from a newspaper or from a magazine. And they had that backing and that funding. But since the Arab Spring, we've seen many young people, and I've met them uh, on my travels, straight out of university, basically offering their services to media organisations who don't have the foreign bureaus or the funding, and they accept it. But what is really worrying me, and I really want to talk about this, is a, a, a recent development that I've seen um, from, from freelance colleagues of mine in the past year or so, is that they, rather than being sent on assignment to places like Libya, they are being told by publications and networks, we will take what you get on your return. So basically, it's spec work, so it's speculative work. So these colleagues of mine have to make a decision. Do they fund themselves? Do they get their own safety equipment? Do they get their own insurance? Do they head to Libya? On the other <coughs> chance, they get enough material to sell when they get back. And it's becoming more and more common. And it's something that I've, I find really irresponsible. Um, basically, you are allowing people to head into these areas, uh, taking risks without any backup, no one to coordinate your release if you're kidnapped, uh, to help you get med medical assistance, uh, to notify your loved ones if something happens to you. Um, it also means you have less credibility in the field. If you're stopped or arrested, you know, what's, where's your evidence? Who are you working for? So um, I think freelancers have got together in a way. There is a freelance, frontline freelance register, which you can look up online, it's really interesting because it's an advocacy group which is trying to represent these unaffiliated reporters in conflict areas. Um, I think it's just so important not to allow freelancers to fill a vacuum uh, which has been created by what is the economic reality of news today. Um, and I think the basic, the basic thing that people can provide if they're going to send people to a war zone um, is life insurance, you know, evacuation cover, um, and the adequate equipment that people need to be able to go into these areas. Now, I want to talk a little bit about my experiences uh, in Africa um, and the difference between reporting uh, from, say, Libya 
Syria, which is practically impossible for most people. Um, reporting from Africa is still not safe, but it is safer uh, as long as you have a logistics sorted, the right phone numbers in your sat phone, you know, you should be okay. Now, the most dangerous place I've reported from in Africa is Somalia. Uh, as a foreign journalist in Mogadishu, you either travel... You either travel in an African Union armoured personnel carrier or with private security. <coughs> that means, on average, 10 to 15 armed guys. Now, we never travel with armed people, uh, usually, in the world, but Somalia is one of the few places that we do have to travel with armed people. Now, you can see me just reporting here, look very hot and sweaty, from a refugee camp. I was reporting on the famine uh, situation uh, back in 2011. And you can see that, you know, there's nobody around me, or you think that there's no one around me. And just look at the next photo. <laughs> That's just a few of the guys who are uh, basically trying to keep me and my team safe. Now, the problem is, if you decide to go in cheaply, you can do, if you can get an embed with the African Union on their base. Um, but you only get one side of the story and you know you run the risk as many people do when they're embedded is uh, <coughs> too close to the military and uh, you know they're the ones who are protecting you so are you really going to criticise them um, now as an Al Jazeera journalist <coughs> the reason why we had so much security and it's not just because you know we like armed guys surrounding us um, we were told that there would be around about a $6 million ransom on our heads working for Al Jazeera because uh, yeah, Al-Shabaab would, would think that uh, our rich Qatari owners would pay that kind of money to get us released. So part of it was actually saving, trying to save Al Jazeera a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, Somali journalists don't have the luxury of security, APCs, you know, they, they face the threat of suicide bombings every day, um, IEDs, and, you know, improvised explosive devices, grenade attacks, shootings. And one of the bravest <coughs> journalists that I met in Somalia uh, was Hassan Fantastic Osmond. He was managing... Uh, yeah. Fantastic was his nickname, yeah. He was managing the edit managing editor of Radio Shabele uh, in Mogadishu in, in 2012 and his predecessor had been assassinated. And when I met him, he was full of enthusiasm, uh, and he truly believed that finding out the truth, reporting uh, on the conflict in Somalia, was worth dying for. Unfortunately, um, Hassan Fantastic uh, was killed, but he wasn't killed on the front line, reporting on the fighting with al-Shabaab. He was shot dead outside his home after he'd received death threats. He was working on a story on corruption at uh, Mogadishu port. Um, more recently, Mustafa Abdi Noor, known as Shafana, was killed uh, last month in an al-Shabaab attack on a hotel in Mogadishu. He was a local journalist but also was a stringer for Al Jazeera. Um, Basically, the day of the attack, he 
called in to Al Jazeera around six in the morning to tell uh, tell us about what was going on, that Al Shabaab uh, had bombed and stormed this hotel in Mogadishu, and he was like, "Yes, I'm safe. I'm I'm hiding behind a car uh, opposite the hotel." And unfortunately, the car that he was hiding behind was rigged with explosives by Al Shabaab, and uh, basically they. They rigged the car and there was a second explosion. Um, and, uh, yeah, his life was cut short. He was only 23. Very sad what happened to him. Um, again, the point I'm trying to make is that as international journalists, we are taking fewer risks. Our bosses and our insurance won't allow it. So we're relying on local journalists and stringers to tell the story. Um, and this is happening more and more because we've seen foreign bureaus uh, cut. We've seen, you know, uh, basically um, the rise of local journalists and, and young journalists who want to fill that vacuum, who want to fill that gap. In a way, I would say it's not necessarily a bad thing. Without them, we would not know about what was going on. We, our news would just be filled with propaganda. Um, and I think that regardless of the danger, young people will always want to go and cover wars and to make a name for themselves uh, with or without proper backup. But it does take a certain amount of courage uh, to board a plane, to cross a border into a war zone. Um, and for myself and for my team that I've worked with, it's always been about whether the risks are worth the reward. When I crossed from no man's land uh, in eastern Congo to be the first crew to interview the rebel group M23, it was a decision that we made as a group. When I investigated a massacre carried out by the rebel group Selika in Central African Republic, right under their noses again, it was a decision that we made as a group. I'd like to end this talk by asking you a question. Um, for you... What do you think has changed? Has journalism changed or has war changed? Are reporters taking more risks to tell their stories or are the conflicts they now cover more dangerous?